morning. For the first uh, three weeks of the series, we saw the gospel unpacked, declared, defended, all in the context of Paul relating his own story, his conversion, his calling to ministry, uh, in the conflict and confrontation with Peter over the, the legalism that had brought a division in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Legalism causes division, as we've seen, but grace causes unity. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's the three basic things that human beings use to divide over. Race, social status and gender. And it's only in Christ that the walls of hostility are broken down. And that's why it's such a scandal when the church historically has fought political battles or divided along these lines. So we've seen the gospel in the context of Paul's own story. Then last week there was a a shift in focus from Paul's personal story to the biggest story of God at work in the world with Abraham as the primary example to follow as one who was justified before God not by works but through faith. Before we continue to look at this uh, story of Abraham, though, let's, let's remind ourselves of the big picture, the grand scheme of things to see how it fits in. This, this will help us understand what Paul is saying about Abraham and the law given at Sinai. We'll see how they all fit together. So I want us to think about it as three horizons. Firstly, the eternal covenant. That's a phrase that appears in the book of Hebrews. And by eternal covenant, we mean that before creation, in the eternal relationship of Father, Son and Spirit, it was always the plan and purpose of the Father to honour his Son by bringing into existence a creation that's filled with creatures who rule over creation in the image of the Son, who bring glory to the Son by ruling over creation in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So creation, both in the sense of the physical thing that we call creation, the world we live in, but also the action of God in creating the world is ultimately all for the glory of God. All things exist for his glory. The reason that we exist, the reason that the tiniest speck of dust right up to the largest galaxy is all designed to be for the praise of his glory. And because God is triune, three persons in one, This whole project of creation isn't a selfish endeavour as it would be if it was us doing it as single persons. Instead, 
Creation is a supreme act of love. The Father glorifies his beloved Son through giving him the gift of creation. The Son glorifies it glorifies the Father by receiving it as a gift and showing the Father to be the all-generous giver. And the Spirit receives glory by being the one who from the very beginning has been hovering over creation as the giver of life and who makes every element of creation work together to ensure that this plan of the Father is brought to completion. So there's the eternal covenant. Secondly, the promises to Abraham. They were, in a way of speaking, a human's eye view of this eternal covenant. The promises to Abraham establishes that the son's rule over creation and over humanity will be one of blessing to humanity. The assurance of supreme authority isn't the guarantee of blessedness in itself. We know that all too well, don't we? In this world, totalitarian human governments are anything but a blessing to their citizens. If, however, the one whose supreme rule over creation is by very nature love, that means his ruling is one of self-giving and therefore his subjects will know the blessing that comes from submitting to his rule. And more than that, if the supreme ruler isn't an outsider or a foreigner, but he rules the people because he's one of them and his dwelling is with them and he walks among them, then they'll experience his reign over them as being raised up to a level of dignity in which they themselves will reign because he represents them in his exercise of authority. That's what God's promises to Abraham secures. Not only that all the nations will be blessed by being ruled over by a just, loving ruler, but that the ruler who rules over them will be one of them. He'll be Abraham's offspring, a son of Adam. I think it's no coincidence that human beings are under the the profound influence of Christianity over many centuries have discovered that the best form of government that we've been able to come up with so far is one in which we have a ruler over us who has power to govern us, to make decisions, to enforce laws, but at the same time they're a representative of us. We call it democracy and we've seen democracy in action in the last 24 hours. The fundamental thing about democracy that makes it the most beneficial form of government for the people is that the one who rules is one with those they rule over. So the best ruler of the nations in God's design is one who will come out of the nations and specifically out of the nation that will be chosen and formed by God through Abraham. Thirdly, 
The third horizon is the law, given at Sinai, the, uh, the covenants are given at Sinai. And what that covenant means ultimately is that the promises given to Abraham will be fulfilled through Christ and his death and resurrection. And we'll look at that in a moment. But first, let's see how this kind of picture is reflected in our passage. Verse 16 tells us of these promises made to Abraham. And we know there were three aspects of those promises a secure dwelling place in the land given to Abraham even though he was a wandering nomad. Secondly, offspring. Offspring as numerous as the stars and the sand given to Abraham even though he was childless. And thirdly, blessing to Abraham and through Abraham to all the nations even though all of the nations were raging and rebellious. So three things that are impossible from a human perspective meant that they must all happen miraculously by the hand of God with whom nothing is impossible. Now Abraham didn't see these promises come to pass in his lifetime because they were made to him and to his offspring. And here Paul picks up on the grammar of the original text in Genesis 12 where offspring is singular rather than plural. God isn't merely saying these promises are going to be delayed and they'll only be fulfilled sometime in the future amongst a future generation. That That's true and Paul will actually pick up on that later. But here he's stressing that the promises are going to be fulfilled through another one, another person, a single person, one whom Abraham foreshadows. Just as God made Abraham to be as one man, the historical point of his redemptive work, so also there will be one man, Abraham's offspring, who'll bring that work of redemption to its historical point of fulfilment and that one man is Christ now let's skip across to 4 verses 6 to 7 which speaks of the goal and the fulfilment of that promise the father's ultimate goal for us in creation his goal in redeeming us is our adoption as sons I I normally try and use the term sons and daughters to make sure that we all get that the promise includes both men and women. But there's an importance in the use of this word son here. Instead of the generic word, Paul could have used a generic word that meant children, including sons and daughters. In the culture of the day, the son was also the heir. Because the father was the head of the household, the firstborn son inherited that position from his father. He received great responsibility to care, to provide for, to protect uh, his family and his household. But he also enjoyed the wonderful privilege of being at the right hand of the father. 
He was included in the Father's plans. He was given insight into the Father's heart as he was being prepared to manage the Father's household. And so there would have been a deep level of intimacy between the Father and his heir. An intimacy expressed in the word Abba. It's not just a description, this man is my biological father. It's an expression of a relationship, of trust, of respect, of honour, of love and intimacy. We see that clearly, don't we, in the conversation between Jesus and the Father in the only time in the Gospels where it's recorded that Jesus used this word Abba. I'm sure he used it all the time, but it's only recorded once. It's as he prayed in Gethsemane at the beginning of his sufferings. He was about to give himself over to the hand of his persecutors to be tortured and crucified and in doing that he would be perfectly fulfilling his father's will. So he says, not my will but yours be done. But in order to do that so perfectly and completely, he needed to be secure in knowing that the father is not just the father but his father. These two things together, Jesus' willingness to do his Father's will and his knowledge of the Father's eternal love for him enabled him to do what he did. And if you add to that what Hebrews 9.14 says, that when Jesus laid down his life it was through the eternal spirit that he offered himself without blemish to God, we realise that Jesus giving himself, his suffering and death was actually a Trinitarian act. It wasn't just Jesus doing it on his own. The Father and the Spirit weren't standing idly by while the Son did all the work. As the Son gave himself to die for us, the Spirit was actively empowering him to do it and the Father was actively receiving the offering that he made. What this all means for us is that what was true for Jesus in that prayer is now true for us because the Father has adopted us. As I said, that's the Father's goal, ultimate goal for us as his sons and daughters, adoption into his family. When you think of your final destination as a Christian, don't think of it in terms so much of a place like heaven or the new creation. The new creation will simply be the venue for the main event, our main destination, which will be the Father himself. God will give us an inheritance and the inheritance will be himself. God's both the one who gives and the one who is given When we receive from God, we don't receive things. We receive him. See how this is expressed in verse 6. God the Father sends the spirit of the Son, his Son, into our hearts so that we might cry in unison with the Spirit and the Son, Abba, 
Father. And that cry, Abba, as I said, is one of both intimacy and obedience. By calling God Abba, we're also saying, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. So what Jesus does in his humanity by being at the same time truly God and truly human is he, he brings this eternal love of the Father and the joyful obedience of the Son and this perfecting power of the Holy Spirit down into the realm of human existence so that being united to Jesus in our shared humanity we might be, as Peter puts it, partakers of the divine nature. But Peter also here talks about sinful desire and so far I've said nothing about sin. Where does sin fit within this grand design, this eternal plan that's been in place from before the beginning of creation and which will be perfected in eternity to come? Well, that's where the middle section of our passage comes in with what it says about the law. This is what connects the eternal covenant that was in place before the foundation of the world with the eternal fulfilment that will come when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Paul's big idea here, as you saw last week and as we see again in this passage, is that the promise made to Abraham that will be completed at the end of the age isn't fulfilled by us keeping the law. Now that was the argument that was being used by these people who were leading the Galatians astray. Obedience to the law, they said, was necessary in order to receive the righteousness of Christ. See, the Pharisees, and uh, these men most likely were from the school of the Pharisees, they believed that in the day when all of Israel obeyed the law, the kingdom of God would come. The Messiah would arrive once they had shown themselves to be worthy of his rule. That's why they were so focused on getting people to obey every single part of the law. That's why they added to the law all of these traditions, all the meticulous details that said right down to the level of what you do with your spices and how you cut your hair and all of these things, whether you can pick a grain of wheat on the Sabbath. In their minds, if we get everyone to perfectly obey the law, then that will bring the kingdom of God. Obedience to the law, they said, precedes the coming of the kingdom. Well, Jesus turned that on its head, didn't he? When he turned up, he declared, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God has already arrived in himself, not because people had done a good job at obeying the law, but so that he might fulfil the law on their behalf by giving himself to save them from all of their law-breaking. So in fact, rather than righteousness bringing about the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah, it's the coming of the Messiah 
that would bring about righteousness. Instead of them obeying the letter of the law to ensure the coming of the kingdom, the Messiah would come and he would ensure that the law would be written on people's hearts so that obedience would flow naturally out of being a citizen of the kingdom. So see verse 18, the inheritance, the ultimate fulfilment, when we cry out, Abba, Father, it comes to us as a promise, not a result of obeying the law. So the puzzle piece connecting the promise to its fulfilment in the kingdom of God isn't obedience to the law. Why? Because the law was only a preparation for the real thing, the coming of the offspring. So the question is, how then did the law prepare the way for the offspring? Well, we see that in verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, the law doesn't set free from sin. It does the opposite. The law imprisons us under sin. Now that may sound counterintuitive to us because we're used to thinking that the law is there to fix sin. It stops people from doing the wrong thing and it makes them do the right thing. When in fact the purpose of the law was to trap us in our law breaking, to throw us into prison while we await our execution. A criminal who's found guilty and who's sentenced to death can't plead before the judge, set me free because I promise I'll be good from now on. Their only hope is if the judge chooses to show mercy and to give them freedom, not because they deserve it, but by an act of grace. So, to the written law, scripture, that's what is meant there by that word scripture, it's a reference to the written law of God has condemned and imprison us so that the only option, the only possible way for the promise to Abraham to be fulfilled is sheer grace in Jesus Christ, receiving, not earning, through trusting. So the link to, between the promise and its fulfilment isn't obedience to law, it's the perfect obedience of Christ in going to the cross. We see in verses 3, uh, 3.24 to 4.3, I'm going to skim over this quickly, like, as I said, um, there's so much here that I can't cover it all. But in that section we see that uh, the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. And that section speaks about this transition from a, a slave with no rights into adulthood when they have the full rights of a son. Now that's a picture that Paul has given us of Israel. They were like a child when they were under the old covenant, under the law. But now what's happened? The bar mitzvah has happened. In the fullness of time, the coming of age... He's no longer a child, but he's an adult. He's able to understand God's word. He's able to 
and know God in his own right. In history, that's the moment when the son stepped into the world as a human being with the express aim of redeeming those who were under the law through his death on the cross. With the coming of Jesus, the law's work, the written law's work is done and it's no longer needed because its goal was always and only that it would lead to faith in Christ. So Christ crucified is what brings the promise to fulfilment and this is what ensures that when all is said and done, God will be praised not only for his glory but for his glorious grace. The eternal covenant between the Father and the Son determines not only the goal or end point of the plan when all nations will be blessed by having the Son to rule over them by being adopted into the Father's family. It also determined the means by which this goal would be accomplished through the Son laying down his life as the Lamb who was slain. In infinite mercy and grace to those who not only don't deserve it, but in fact deserve the opposite. The manifold glory of God is seen in the Father sending his Son to reconcile a rebellious and hostile humanity to himself and in the Son's good and kind rule over the nations which he expressed in humility and self-sacrifice. He died in the place of wretched sinners ensuring that mercy triumphs over judgment. And then the Spirit coming to dwell in our hearts to ensure that the reality of what Christ has done isn't just an objective reality, but it's a personal reality for us. And by personal reality, I don't mean, as the world generally thinks of it, an individual reality. We live in a very individualistic culture, a culture in which I'm the ruler of my world and I'm the master of my destiny. My uh, my identity, we've been talking about this on Friday nights with The Authentic Life, my identity in this culture isn't defined by those outside of me. It's not God or the community that tell me who I am, but instead I can choose my own identity and I can expect God and the community to not only recognise my choice but celebrate it. That's what our culture is telling us. And the culture around us will always be impinging on our thinking as Christians. So we're told that personal faith is my own private relationship with God and no one else's business about how I relate to God or how I live my life. As a result, what happens? Well, then I become fearful of sharing the gospel and telling people they need to repent and believe because they have a right to determine their own destiny and believe what they want. Uh, We're told that it's that my individual faith in Jesus that makes me a Christian, not being part of the church. And so, as a result, I place more emphasis on my own spiritual well-being than I do on serving one another. 
Or I'm told that personal experience and feelings determines what's true. So I think that going to church should give me an emotional and spiritual high and experience instead of helping us together to be grounded in the objective truths of God and his word. But see how a perspective on salvation that begins with that eternal covenant and the promises to Abraham, it actually calls us out of individualism and into the corporate dimension, into community. To say that we are all sons of God in Christ Jesus, that's not merely a personal relationship with Jesus, it's not merely intimacy with the Father, it is those things. But see what Paul emphasises here about Jesus, that he is the Christ. Abraham's offspring is Christ. The law was our guardian until the coming of Christ. We are baptised into Christ and we've put on Christ. When he does use the word, the name Jesus, it's Christ Jesus. What he's doing here is he's emphasising Jesus' role as Christ, as the anointed king who rules over God's people. To say he is Christ speaks not just about how Jesus, the man, the person, relates to me individually, but it's to say how he relates to the church and to the world. To say Jesus is the Christ means he's the one who's gathering people out of all nations to form a people of God, one people under God. So the world's gospel of individualism, contrary to what we might think, divides and separates people. It produces tribalism. It validates everyone's chosen identity and it tells me that I can pick my identity and I have to stand up for my rights. But as soon as I stand up for my rights, someone else is going to lose theirs. To try, try to work out your individual identity and you'll very quickly find that you'll start separating yourself from anyone who doesn't affirm your choice of identity. You'll do it because you say, they're judging me, they're not accepting me, they're not celebrating me. I said at the start there are these three things that human beings divide over. Race, social status and gender. Ultimately they're all about identity, aren't they? When people say their core identity is found in their race or nationality or their recognition and role in society or their gender and sexuality, what they've actually done is they've set up a battleground to fight for their rights, to demand that their worth, their chosen identity is recognised. But what happens when we are in Christ Jesus. That is, we're brought into the kingdom of God, into the family of God by Jesus, our Messiah, our King. 
Well, our God-given identity as children of God, as sons of God, that overrides all of the other identities. It demolishes all of the hostility that they cause. Our place in God's kingdom isn't determined by race or social status or gender, but by the grace of God. God who treats us all as equals. We are equal in our common nature as sinners, but we're also in Christ. We are equal in our status before God as sons and daughters of God. The Gospel tells us that our identity isn't self-determined. It's given to us by God. He's the one who adopts us. He's the one who calls us his children. He's the one who sends his spirit into our hearts and enables us to say, Abba, Father. And because this is our God-given identity, it forces all of our self-chosen identities to fall by the wayside. That's not to deny the importance of a place in the community or our ethnic or national background or our maleness or our femaleness. Uh, Though all those things are recognised and are celebrated and sanctified by God, but they're not the foundational basis of our identity. We are sons of God in Jesus Christ. So make sure your security is found in your identity as a child of God, not in the many and various identities that the world will say you need to have. Set your vision not on the things that you can grasp in this world by asserting your rights, but on what has already been given to you in Jesus by grace.